Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Basketball is back, and Bet Online remains your number one source for all your sports betting needs this season. You'll always find the latest odds, team matchup info, player news, and game trends at Bet Online. And as your continued source for all sports wagering information, Bet Online features live betting, free contests, and giveaways all season long. Always the fastest and easiest way to bet all your favorite sports and events, whether that's the NFL, NBA, NHL, MMA tennis, boxing, or even golf. Head to betonline.ag to join and receive your 50% welcome bonus with your first deposit. Make sure you use promo code BLEAVE, B-L-E-A-V, to receive your rewards. BetOnline, where the game starts. All right, folks, this is Jeremy Evans, your host of the California Sports Lawyer Podcast. As always, thank you for listening in and making us the number one sports law podcast in the world. Today, we have a very special guest. This is episode 43 of season four. Heather Antoine is our guest today. She is a trademark and privacy partner at Stubbs, Alderon, and Markleys in Los Angeles. She is a terrific lawyer and a dear friend and is very knowledgeable in all things internet law, trademark, copyright, and privacy which of course is a growing area of the law. So we had her join the podcast and uh, my role in the, in the interview was to really bring it back to sports and entertainment and how it applies in that context, whether that be in music or whether it be uh, for licensing or whether it be in uh, licensing, uh, name, image, and likeness for college athletics or even for, for professional athletes. So uh, sit back and enjoy the show and hope that uh, you enjoy the interview uh, with Heather. Let's bring my my dear friend, uh, Heather Antoine, in. She is um, an intellectual property attorney and um, one of the best. And, and, you know, I might be biased in that, but uh, she is a, a trademark and privacy partner at Stubbs Alderong. And uh, is it Markillies? Markleys. Markleys. All right. Stubbs, Alderon, and Markleys. So um, Heather is such a wonderful person. We've been friends for, I don't know how long now, probably maybe not 10 years, but uh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so Heather originally started out as a sole practitioner and ran such an amazing practice that uh, she, she did that for almost seven years. And then um, she got picked up as a partner at a, at a big law firm. She's chair of the trademark uh, practice and co-chair of the privacy and data security practice. I got to know Heather through um, really through internet law. And we had had some conversations and talking about um, sort of the future of the internet and uh, how the law sort of fills in with that. Um, and then she is the former chair of the uh, intellectual property section for the California Lawyers Association. She's amazing and uh, so happy that she's given a, us of her time tonight as we talk about um, intellectual property, what it is, and sort of her career path. So 
Heather, welcome. Thanks. Happy to be here. Awesome. So, um, all right. So let's let's get into this. Uh, so Heather, let's start with sort of how you got, I mean, I guess, why did you want to become a lawyer? Right. And then how did you get into, um, intellectual property and privacy and what kind of drove you to, uh, into those practice areas? How did I get into the law? I have no idea. I was seven years old and I told my parents that I wanted to be a lawyer um, not sure how that bizarre idea got planted in my head, but you know, here I am as a lawyer. So <laughs> that piece, I'm not sure of, but that's, that's the best answer. That's the best answer I have. <laughs> I love it. No, that's good. That's a fair answer. I mean, I wanted to be a lawyer because I, uh, I watched a ton of law and order episodes and thought I'd be a good district attorney. So, you know, here we are. Um, all right. Well, maybe let's start with an easy question. And I don't know, maybe it's not easy, but what is intellectual property? Because I so, think, yeah, so that's like the broadest question, but yeah. Yeah. I mean, intellectual property is property you can't touch, right? So it's it's property that you value based on something that you can't actually hold or grasp. So it's not real property. It's not going to be your house. It's not going to be an item, a not that this has any value, but you know what I'm saying, like jewelry or house or anything you can actually touch. It's what has value that you can't. So when you think about a company, there's its physical assets. Um, and then there's all the, the, the assets that a company has that are valued without being able to see it. So like Apple has a ton of value in its name, in the little Apple logo, um, in think differently in all of that. So, so those are, that's specifically, those are all trademarks and we can talk about the different forms of intellectual property, but that's a type of intellectual property. Awesome. Okay. So let's talk a little bit about trademarks then. So, um, and then of course I, in my mind, what there's four different areas of intellectual property, right? You got trade secrets, patents, uh, trademarks, and copyright. Um, so maybe if we could maybe walk through some of those, uh, and then give, give like examples of it. So you just mentioned the trademark with Apple, uh, but maybe talk a little bit about, uh, each of those areas if you can. Sure. So trademarks, I'm biased because I'm trademarks are probably my favorite thing in the whole world. Um, trademarks are the most fun you can have as a lawyer. Again, super biased, but here I am. And it's the first thing you really recognize in terms of a legal concept as a child. So you, you know, you walk, your parents walk in with a target bag and you see the red dot. That's your first indoctrination into branding and the value of a brand. And the way that you protect the value of that brand is through a trademark. So trademarks are always going to be about the brand, whether it's the name the logo, the slogan. You can also have a trademark on a scent. Play-Doh has protected their the scent of Play-Doh um, on a sound. So if you think of Intel's ding, 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 um, anything that when you see it, hear it, smell it, feel it, touch it, you think of a source, of the company source, that's gonna be protected by trademark. Um, copyright protects artistic avenues. So your um, 
art, your sculptures, your paintings, your photographs, your screenplays, books. Um, it's going to be all of the arts that that is protected by copyright. And then patents protect um, inventions, methodologies, systems, um, software, copy, you know, the code of software can be potentially protected by copyright. So it's the more uh, nuts and bolts, sciencey math part of things. And then trade secrets kind of protects the formulations that you do not want to have public. So patents are public. If you want to protect something secretly, what, yes, my dog is in my lap, guys. Sorry. Um, <laughs> so you may as well say hi now. Um, so if you want to protect something secretly, that is, is, you know, and you don't want it to be public. So it could be a formulation, it could be a customer list and you have appropriate, um, safeguards around it, then that would be protected by trade secret. Awesome. Um, on the trademark space, I mean, one of the things that I think comes up, um, and one of the topics that. Uh, we'll sort of that we've talked about or or we'll talk about is this idea of like genericide. So when something becomes, and you'd probably have a better definition, but something becomes so generic that um, it in some sense maybe loses some of its value as a trademark. Um, maybe can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. So when you have a really unique trademark, um, and this actually generally happens with almost the most unique trademarks there are. But when you have a unique trademark and when you have any trademark, you have a responsibility to enforce that trademark against infringers. If you fail to do that, you basically allow third parties to start using your trademark in a way that dilutes it, right? The more other people are using it, the more confusing it gets and the more diluted it becomes. And so, an example of this is um, Elevator. Elevator was initially a trade, trademark. It was a protected brand. It was a made-up word. But then other companies started to call their, their vertical staircases elevators. And Elevator, the brand, failed to protect their brand. And so it ended up becoming part of our vernacular, where it's now in the dictionary, right? Um, and when that happens, you lose, you lose your trademark rights. So um, that's happened with Aspirin. It's happened with Elevator. It's happened with other name brands. So, so one brand that people often mess up with that is a brand and hasn't been genericized yet is Kleenex. So technically it's a tissue, right? It's not Kleenex. Kleenex is the brand. Tissue is what it is. But people will often say, can you pass me a, a Kleenex? And it doesn't matter what brand they're referring to. Yeah. No, good point. Um, you know, one of the things that's interesting that I always think about is like Google, for example, right? Because that to me is like, it sounds like that could be potential for genericide because when, like, for example, if we were to say to each other, hey, let's look something up on the internet, we probably wouldn't say that. We would say, hey, go Google it. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so it's it's like a, a modern example uh, of, so. I mean, what, what, what are your thoughts on that? I mean, do you think Google has enough in other areas besides the internet that they could 
continue the mark or do you think it's got some potential there? Yeah, so I actually don't have to even give you my thoughts. I can give you the court's thoughts on this. This was already challenged. Um, someone challenged Google and said that Google had become a genericized trademark and Google said no. And the reason is this, and this is what the court's argument was that was actually bought. When you say go Google that, you actually mean go Google it. When you say go Google it, you're not saying go type it into Bing because every, right? So you are actually identifying the company that you're saying to use. Um, I think a riskier version of this that I often hear people say is, hey, grab an Uber. And they say Uber, even if they mean Lyft. And that's where you, you fall into a weird zone. Whereas when you say, go, let, you know, I'll Google that or you Google that, you're typically referring to Google because they, the, they are the browser, really. Right, right. Um, and then maybe if we could, just out of uh, curiosity, maybe walk through like the, the trademark process um, through like the USPTO in the sense of just generic, like, how long does it take? What does that look like? Uh, and what benefits do you get from like trademark trademark registration? Um, how long does it take is a ever evolving <laughs> thing. So so pre pre COVID, I would have told you that from the time you file the application to the time it's reviewed by a trademark examiner is generally about three months. Now we're at the point where we're closer to nine to 10 months. Um, so there's an immense backlog at the USPTO, which definitely is affecting the period of time. But the general process is that you file an application. Hopefully you've done a search before you file that application and, and talk to your lawyer about whether the name or the logo or the slogan is viable. You file the application, it's reviewed by the examiner. And the examiner is going to look at that application to see, is it conflicting with another application or registration that is, is currently out there? Um, is it descriptive? Is it, you know, um, violative of any laws like the Controlled Substances Act, for example? They're going to make that review. And if they don't find any problems with it, they will then clear it to publication. And if they do find a problem, they'll refuse it and issue an office action. So the whole process generally takes a minimum about a, a year and it can take up to three years, frankly. Wow. Um, and then what are some of like the reasons, I mean, like you mentioned the reasons something might be denied. Um, you mentioned descriptive. So an example would of that would be, um, I'm trying to think. Like if somebody said, I have, um, I'm trying to think of an example, like uh, let's say San Diego Tire Shop, right? Mm -hmm. Or something that's too generic or something that's too descriptive. Mm -hmm. Would that be like a good example? That would be a good example. That would be a great example. Yes. Okay. Now, change, and then of course with the, I was going to say changing gears, but I kind of want to stick on trademarks for a second. When we're talking about trademarks, what are some of the values of maybe registering a trademark? I mean, I know one, you get the circle R, right? You get to have registered R after your after your name, like you see on Coke or Pepsi or what have you. But uh, what are some of the other benefits of having a registered trademark? Yeah, the biggest benefit is a presumption of nationwide protection. 
So what that means is if you are able to file and obtain a trademark registration with the USPTO, then um, you have a presumption that your trademark is in effect in all states in the United States. If you fail to do that, then your trade, then and you go about using a brand. Let's say I was, um, here we go, Poppy and Pout, this little lip, lipstick right here, and I did not file for a trademark, which they don't have a registered art, so maybe they haven't. And I'm only selling this into California and um, Arizona. Someone in New York could start selling Poppy and Pout lip balm. And I wouldn't necessarily have an ability to go after them for trademark infringement. It would be a harder battle to prove that because when you have common law trademark rights only, when you fail to register nationwide, you, the presumption is that you're protected in your geographical region. So you can argue maybe the West Coast, but it would be hard to argue that anybody on the East Coast, if you had never sold there, was aware of Poppy and Pout. But if you register it, if you've sold in California and Arizona only, you could sue someone in New York if they started selling. So that is a huge, huge difference. It's, it's a massive level of protection. There's also just increased statutory benefits um, and other, other nitpicky benefits, but that's the biggest one. Love that. And then there is that piece that you can get, what is it, after five years? Is Incon it incontestability? Yeah. Mm -hmm. so, what's, so what's that all about? So if you have a registered trademark for five years at your fifth year, between your fifth and your sixth year, you have to file a renewal anyway. And with that renewal, you can also file for incontestability, which means that let's say someone was using the mark before you, but they only had common law rights and you didn't know they existed, but you registered the name. After that period of five years, they can't then come and try to cancel your trademark and say they were there first. So it's, it's immensely beneficial for that reason. The only way that after that period of five years, your trademark can be canceled is if someone finds fraud. Um, which hopefully you did not fraudulently obtain your trademark. Right. <laughs> hopefully. Hopefully. Uh, and then on the, the copyright space, um, the process there is, is, is fairly simple, right? It's, uh, what is it, on the U.S. copyright website. And of course, trademark is on uspto.gov. Um, and there's also a trademark search platform on there too that, if you guys want to search if somebody has a trademark or a registered trademark anyway. Um, but maybe talk a little bit about the process for copyright and um, and what that might include. I mean, obviously, in my mind, I'm thinking a book, uh, a poem, uh, a movie script. Um, obviously, you get copyright for paintings uh, and any sort of uh, artistic works. Let me talk a little bit about that, if you can, in terms of the process for copyright and what it might include. Sure. So before we go to copyright, just on the yeah. trademark level, you can file for a trademark registration nationwide, as we talked about, and that's before the USPTO. Each state also has their own trademark filing procedures. So why would you want to file in a particular state? 
let's say you're a local brand and you're only selling in California, you're going to want to file in California only. You're not eligible to file nationwide until you've sold into two states. So that's one piece. Or let's say you're selling cannabis, which is legal here, but illegal in other states. What you can do to protect your brand is actually file in all the states that it's legal in. So you would file in California, in Colorado, Michigan, and you would go around and create this patchwork of protection. Um, so that's that's trademarks. On the copyright side, you use you use copyright.gov. That's where you would um, you know both search and file. And I always say that that trademark filings are deceptively simple, and no one should ever do it themselves. But copyright, the entire system was set up for creatives. And so it is fairly simple for someone to go through and try to file for their own copyright. Um, the filing fees are very low. They're between $40 and $60 versus the USPTO, which is in the hundreds of dollars. Um, and so it's really a beneficial system for creatives. And there's a million instructionals that kind of walk people through. You just kind of pick, is this a literary work? Is this a pictorial work? Is this, you know, you pick your class, you say who, who the creator is, you say if anyone else was involved and you kind of like follow the, the application process. It's, it's much more straightforward. It's also a much shorter process. It's currently about six months. Awesome. And then on the licensing piece, um, which you deal with, you deal with a little bit of that in your practice too, right? Mm -hmm. um, so on the licensing piece for copyright or for trademark, what might that look like? Um, and I, I'll give some sports examples too, but what, the, what, what might licensing look like or what would be the purpose for, for licensing, uh, you know, trademarks or copyrights? Yeah. So um, what, what's a good, I mean, maybe you, do you want to start with a sports yeah. example? Just because right. I can think of one off the top of my head. I was yeah. like, oh, those sports exactly. Yeah. yeah. No, 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 no. Good, good, good one. So um, all right. So let's use, I mean, you could even use music. I mean, obviously, if you want to license music for something, if you want to have a public performance, you want to put something out there. But I think maybe more in context for um for what we're talking about, maybe let's say name, image, and likeness. So let's say that you have a college athlete and they want to work with a brand, right? And uh, the brand wants to promote a certain certain shoe or some sort of apparel or product. There would have to be some sort of licensing um, that would occur where, let's say Nike wants, um, you know, a star quarterback to promote some brand. And then of course, it would have to be some agreement in play that says, hey, you're allowed to use our marks in your post but only for X period of time and only for this certain purpose. So that would be like one example. Yeah. Does, does that help? Yeah. All right. And any, anytime you have overlapping brands, so anytime you see two brands mixed together, you should, you should always assume there was a license agreement. So if you pick up a um, Butterfinger and it's Disney branded, a license agreement allowed that to occur. Or if there's, um, you know, the Susan G. Komen Breast Cancer Foundation, sometimes they put the pink ribbons on all the athletes' jerseys. 
there was licensing that allowed for that to happen because anytime you're using the intellectual property of that belongs to someone else and and that includes name and image and likeness which is you know potentially a right of publicity um that is it it has to be accounted for yeah now good good point and then of course some of the mistakes that people will make is they'll go on the internet and they'll say well the internet had it so i just pulled it off the internet and uh <laughs> i used it but of course you can't do that right i mean these things have copyright and you'll notice that when you go to google or anywhere else there'll be some disclaimer on there that says um hey this may be subject to copyright right yeah right 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 no absolutely I, people people use this term it's the most um, misused term, I think that exists. That people say, I found it online. So it was in the public domain. <laughs> public domain has a very specific definition in intellectual property law, which is what happens after the expiration of a copyright. And there is a specific term that is associated with that. Just because you see something on the internet does not mean it's fair game. In fact, I don't know how to say this nicely. There are lots of people who will put things on the internet so that you mistakenly use them and then you get sued. Right. Kind of like uh, that'd be the equivalent of like a, a what are the folks who who um, purchase like domains and then try to go back and sell them to people, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a lot of, a lot of uh, shenanigans happening. Right. There's a term for them too. It's like, Internet or trolls? What is it? The domain okay. trolls? Yeah. 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 I was trying to be nice, Jeremy. I, was, I wasn't <laughs> going to say all of that, but yeah. <laughs> I love it. Um, all right. And then, you know, patents. I know that your firm handles patents, but um, I mean, that's something I'm not as familiar with. I mean, I took a patent class in law school, but you have to have a special license for that. Could you talk a little bit about patents and then, uh, and then trademark or uh, trade secrets? Sorry. I am not, so I am also not great with patents. I am not a patent lawyer. As Jeremy mentioned, you, you have to have a math or science background, and then you have to take a second bar to be in the, to be a patent prosecutor. You can be a patent litigator without having that background, but to actually prosecute patent applications, you have to have that, that science math or, you know, STEM background, um, which I don't have. So, so, and our firm actually doesn't do any, any patent work. We'll, we'll license, we'll do the licensing for patent deals, but we do not do any of the, the, the prosecution part. But um, broadly speaking, the reason you have to have that background is because patents are going to protect, you know, your engineering plans, your methodologies on how, how a machine works or your software code, something hyper-technical. And you have to be able to explain to the USPTO how this technical thing works and that's what's protected. Right, right. No, good point. I mean, I always remember um, one of the funny things I remember about the patent class that I took, and it was part of a general intellectual property class, but was um, the whole disclosure piece of patents. In that when you're trying to create something, obviously when you uh, when you file a patent, you're somewhat disclosing on the website, uh, the USPTO website, what your invention or improvement is. But one of the funny stories I always remember about um, 
sort of the patent part of the intellectual property class was there was a story of a gentleman who created the first bra, right? And and then he basically had his, I think it was fiance at the time. This was like, I think late 1800s. Um, and this was like sort of like in the old West, right? And so and he had his, um, his fiance at the time basically utilized the bra, but like walked down the street or the boardwalk, but with a shirt on, right? So it wasn't like, she was walking. It wasn't like a Seinfeld episode, you know, but um, if anybody knows that reference, but so, but the point is, is that um, I think ultimately when uh, somebody basically tried to copy his invention, um, uh, there was some dispute as to whether having a person walk down the street with the invention on and in public and people were able to recognize it, even though the person had a shirt on, that that might be considered disclosure. And so one of the things I often tell clients, you know, as I'll say, hey, look, I'm not a patent attorney, um, but one thing you need to be careful about when you're going out and talking to people about a patent idea or something you wanna, um, you know, process or, or, or protect is you wanna be careful about who you share it with. And so um, going around and telling all your friends and your family about some idea you have is probably not the best idea. Uh, and best way to go about it. I don't know if you had any experience with that, Heather, but that's sort of been, uh, you know, my go-to there. Yeah, yeah, no, no, no. I mean, I don't really. I'm, I'm, I'm a little out of the weeds on on patents, but yeah. If you right. if you want a patent discussion, though, I could bring in one of my partners. They, we have we have four patent lawyers at the firm. Um, none are patent prosecutors, but they're all patent lawyers, and so they could come in and talk shop. Right. I love that. No, I'll take you up on that one. Um, so on the trade secrets piece, maybe talk, you explained it really well earlier, but maybe uh, as a recap, maybe talk a little bit about uh, trade secrets and where that might be important. And of course, as a practical example, I always use like the Coke formula. So Coca-Cola would be a trade secret, right? And the great thing about trade secrets is that you don't have to file anything if anything, if you filed anything, you would basically disclose it. Um, but it's this idea that something is protected in sort of uh, the way that you protect it and keep it secret, whether through non-disclosure agreements or whether it's through limited employees seeing it, seeing it or whether it's locked in a vault. Um, but of course, that trade secret can potentially last forever if it never gets disclosed. Um so anyway, what maybe talk a little bit about trade secrets if you can, Heather. Um, I mean, a trade a trade secret is just that, right? It's a secret. So for something to be a secret, you have to think it has to have at least two parts, right? It has to be valuable. Otherwise, is it really that big of a deal? And you have to protect it. So if I run around telling everyone in my friend group, the same piece of very boring information, like let's say I just walked around and told everybody what I had for dinner, it's not valuable and it's not a secret. So what, what it has to be is something that's, you know, somebody could potentially blackmail me with or use for value. And I've only told one person and, and I've secured it, right? Maybe I've made this person swear up and down that they would never share it with anyone. That's where you take something into the trade secret level. And so it's something like the Coke formula is a perfect example. It's something you don't want anyone else to know. That formula is 
secured by literally physical security. It's secured by documents, by non-disclosure agreements for anyone who has access to it. Um, it is it is tight. It is a tight ship. If you don't secure your trade secret properly, you have potential challenge. You may lose it if it's not valuable and if it's public. If in any way this becomes public, it also is no longer a trade secret. The probably the most contentious battle within trade secret law is customer, customer information. So let's say you're a company and you've compiled all of this information about your customers, what they like to buy, how many orders they have, who's the contact, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But it's out in a binder that's open to everyone in the company, can't protect it via trade secret. If you have valuable information like that, and that information is valuable, you should have all of your employees signing that they won't share it if they have access to it, that they won't, you know, take it if they go anywhere else, that these are your relationships. These are very important things to document along the way. Um, but but I would say the biggest fights come over customers and technology. Technology is often stolen, what the secret to your technology is. And so that's usually treated as a trade secret. And if it is stolen, the fun part about this is it's most likely stolen by an employee. So it becomes a trade secret that sometimes the federal government gets involved in because if it's stolen by an employee, it can often be given to a foreign jurisdiction um, and that causes all sorts of fun. Right. No, good point. Um, well, maybe if you can um, talk a little bit about your practice, and with, I mean, obviously, you know, you can't tell us everything, but, um, you know, a little bit about your practice, what you're working on, or, you know, maybe some interesting uh, sort of cases that you've had, um, or maybe even your favorite sort of, you know, you mentioned trademarks are your favorite, and I'm biased there too. I like trademarks too. So maybe talk a little bit about that as, as, as much as you can. Yeah, sure. I mean, the one thing about, um, IP that we haven't talked about. And some people group this into IP and others don't. And I do because this is the second half of my practice, which is privacy. So why do I throw privacy into IP? Because privacy is all about data and data is a property you can't touch, right? It's what does anybody, any company do with the, the information that they have access to. Um, and so a big part of my practice is privacy. And I work with all sorts of companies to get them compliant with what used to be very simple privacy laws and are now um, very complex and very uh, all, over the, all over the map, frankly. So um, about five years ago, the EU released a set of privacy laws called the General Data Protection Regulation, the GDPR, kind of changed the entire space. Um, and then since then, a ton of jurisdictions, so all of, all of the big jurisdictions you can imagine, you know, Canada, Australia, um, Japan and, and the UK have all, all have their own privacy laws. And then here in the US, as of next year, which is a month and a half away, which is wild, um, 
five states will have privacy laws. And so if you can, you know, if you can figure from a company standpoint, they have to figure out how to map which of those laws they have to comply with and how to do that without breaking um, the bank because this stuff can get very costly. And so I work with them on all of that. That's super fun. My clients range. Um, I have a bunch of clients in the apparel industry um, and you know, consumer products, so food, apparel, things you can you can touch. And then we have a lot of tech clients. Um, and and you know, I kind of get in the, the best part of my practice is that I get to touch every type of business and learn about it. So I just spent a half hour earlier today learning about someone's business and it's all relating to converting, using a membrane to convert water to lithium. I mean, this stuff was mind boggling and I am not a super technical science person, but I have to know how to protect that person's brand. And the only way I can do that is by understanding what they're doing. And so it's, it's, you know, understanding these nuances, which makes what I do super fun. Right. No. And to your point, I mean, privacy is really, um, you know, it's really become uh, one of the larger practice areas. It's continuing to grow. Um, and of course it's an important issue. And I think practically speaking, um, to, I guess, bring it back to home when you're on a website, let's say you go to Google and you search your favorite, you know, vehicle or your favorite clothing line, there's inevitably going to be some sort of disclosure, right? On the website that says like a pop-up that says, um, what cookies do you want to allow? Right. Meaning, uh, do you want them to be able to track you? Do you want them to be able to take information from your search? All those things. And that you've got a little button that says, you know, strictly necessary cookies or whatever it is, right? But that's like one practical example of, of that. But then maybe another practical example might be, let's say like a company like Facebook or um, Instagram, which is the same company or Twitter, where, you know, really they're advertising companies that are platforms where people share things. But of course, those companies learn a lot about you and about consumers in general by the stuff that you share. And so now because of, what is it, the California Consumer Privacy Act and then uh, GDPR, which is for Europe, you have to follow all these guidelines as a company. Um, and of course, lawyers are needed for that. Um, and of course, a lot of companies potentially uh, could get in trouble. Is that kind of the gist of it, Heather? Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the, the two practical takeaways from what you just said are, if you do get a cookie pop-up, please don't, please don't click accept all. (laughs) (laughs) I just, I just got a face. I love it. Um, So what you're saying when you're saying accept all is that you're allowing this company and the companies they've hired as their service providers to place cookies on your browser. And when they do that, they're not only tracking you while you're using their website, they can potentially track you even after you're using there. So you can close out of their website, but that cookie's still there. The cookie's placed on the browser. And so now it's tracking to see where did you go? Where else have you visited? And they use this information to then market to you, to create a profile about you, all, all of the fun things. And so if you see a, you know, accept all cookies, 
always click that other button that either says decline or use necessary only or confirm my choices and then go into confirm my choices and confirm only necessary. And I know it's super annoying to go through that process, but it's better than letting all of, all of these massive companies have all of this data on you. Um, that's piece one. Piece two of this is if you wanna play a, a fun game, um, you can actually, as California residents, you can submit an access request to all of the major, let's say social media companies and to Google. So you can go to Facebook, submit a request for access under the California Consumer Privacy Act. And they, by law, have to provide you access to a link that'll show you all of the information they've collected about you. And it's mind boggling how much information they have. Um, it's also just a really good way if you wanna say like, I wanna, I wanna log of all the pictures I posted, they have to provide it to you. So, you know, that's, it's fun. It's fun to play around with, with Facebook and Google and Amazon and see, see all the fun stuff. You can also um, request to delete your information. If you're still an active user, they, they have a right to, to refuse to delete because you're still using the platform. But let's say like, I haven't been on social media in probably five years. So if I requested deletion of any of these old accounts, they would, they would basically delete. Yeah, I wanna know who's passing out cookies too. Who's, who's got cookies? Oh, cookies. Okay, we got a lot of jokesters in this class. I'll I like it, I like it. <laughs> oh man, a lot of characters. I love it. Um, so maybe the last one we'll do here, um, and then we can open it up, is talk a little bit, uh, if you can, about um, like DMCA requests. Do you deal with any of those, like takedown notices? Yeah, yeah. So I'm usually on the company side. Um, and so that's the one thing I want to I want to be clear. But so the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, the DMCA, basically is what a company would use to provide a safe harbor in the event that they have a platform or a website that allows for any user generated content. So lots of words there. So basically, if you're Facebook and you have a bunch of users that are that are posting pictures on your website, um, you can file a registration with the DM with the Copyright Office for a DMCA registration. And then when someone says, hey, that's my picture that person is using, they can't sue Facebook. What they have to do is submit a DMCA takedown request to say, that's my picture, you should take it down. And then Facebook would take it down. Um, and so it's this entire system that basically helps to protect the company so that we allow these platforms to continue to continue to continue uh, and and provide these services where user generated content exists um, what's really important is that the company has to register with the copyright office they have to register a designated agent and um, they have to renew it every year interesting okay um and i it's kind of interesting cuz that can be a an entire practice area, you know, particularly if you're a copyright owner and you're, you know, I, I guess I could think of if you're a sports team or a broadcaster and, you know, this happens a lot during fights, right? You mm -hmm. know, you have somebody might put up 
um, a fight on YouTube that's, you know, licensed through HBO. And then you'll have like people take it down or, uh, or companies will be actively monitoring that, taking it down, but, uh, or music, music in uh, places where it shouldn't be. Right. And right. this is of course what really led to um, universal music signing deals with, let's say Facebook um, in terms of now you can post um, a picture or a video and you can add music to it. And then of course, uh, Facebook will pay basically a licensing fee for that. So, or if you walk into a restaurant and you hear music playing, that's a license, right? Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. of course, these DMCA's are great. You just got to be careful with them. As Heather mentioned earlier, it's like you got to be careful because there is a penalty of per- perjury in there. Well, Heather, you've been awesome. Um, I don't want to take too much more of your time. Uh, but you know, thanks again for being here and all right, folks, thank you so much for listening in. That was Heather Antoine, who's a partner, trademark and privacy law partner at Stubbs, Alderon and Markley's in Los Angeles. Uh, thanks again to Heather for joining us again. This show has been brought to you by bet online. I'm your host, Jeremy Evans, and this is the California sports lawyer podcast. Thank you so much for making us the number one sports law podcast in the world. Have a great day. listening to believe you can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform check us out at believe.com and search for b-l-e-a-v on youtube